Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me as always is my producer, Kevin Black. Kevin, we are recording this on Sunday, June 6th, after what was one hell of an opening game to the second round for the 76ers as they ended up losing a close one to the Atlanta Hawks. However, that game was not close for the majority of the time. Um, certainly enough to get into with that game. We also had uh, we had Clippers-Mavs game seven this afternoon. We have the Clippers advancing to play the Jazz in the next round of the playoffs. What we want to do here is we kind of want to set the scene for the next round. We want to give a preview, and we want to give our second round predictions. So, Kevin, you ready to, to toss a few opinions out there, give some predictions? You always know I am. <laughs> so why why don't we start with the hometown 76ers why don't we start there so that was a rough game for philly um you you kind of said it to me before we hopped in here and they got absolutely blasted on defense in that first game uh we we, we laid it out for the atlanta hawks when we talked about trey young in, in our original preview with the hawks going up against the knicks we knew the knicks couldn't play pick and roll defense very well at all and Trey Young completely eviscerated New York. But I thought the difference would be, at least coming into game one, that the 76ers generally know how to handle themselves when it comes to pick-and-roll defense, especially when you can put somebody like Ben Simmons at the point of attack and then being able to play coverage with Embiid kind of backing them up. The 76ers didn't handle themselves well at all um, in pick-and-roll coverage with Trey Young because they decided to play Danny Green at the point of attack and you could just tell from the get-go that Trey was going to slash his way through that defensive scheme. He's way too quick for Danny green. Danny can't keep up with him laterally anymore. And all Trey needed to do was get one step on him. And it got to the point where, yeah, they're obviously going to have Embiid sag off and drop back a little bit. Well, you need somebody who's able to contain Trey and keep him in front of him. Cause if you let Trey kind of get in that in between game, his floater is killer. And we know that uh, he, he certainly made enough of them today. And then even when you do get the right matchup, he can still probe in, come back out and then set himself up for that deep three ball, which he certainly hit enough of those to silence the crowd today as well. So it, it was honestly, it, it was a pretty brutal display defensively um, the, during the first half. And I expect more from Philly, but at the same time, I think it was more out of a lack of respect for their matchup. I didn't think that they thought that Atlanta was going to come out and shoot the ball the way that they did. And and props to Atlanta, props to that front office who has put together one hell of a deep team uh, of late. I mean, you look out there, it's pretty much Trey Young is the only like smaller guard out there. And the rest of their lineup is either these bigger forwards and centers like Collins and Capella or it's these massive wings like Herter, Bogdanovich. They didn't have DeAndre Hunter today. He was out. But if he comes back, he's another one of those big wings. And they just have size everywhere to surround Trey Young, where even if those guys aren't necessarily plus defenders, they're at least big enough and long enough to be able to bother shots on the other end. Um, and, and probably, before I toss it over to you, Kevin, to kind of get some of your thoughts and where you think the series is going to go, I'll point out two more things. First of all, Solomon Hill did one hell of a job on Tobias Harris today. He completely took away Harris's confidence in terms of when he had the ball in his hands, looking to make a play off the dribble, when he tried to drive and get into the lane. 
Um, Hill was able to knock the ball away and, and make him uncomfortable on drives and make him turn the ball over. And, and that really got the Tobias for, for the rest of the game. Now, give Toby credit. He definitely picked it up towards the, the end of the second half, and he finished the game shooting the ball 8 for 12 from the field. But you could just tell by the eye test that Tobias was not his usual aggressive self. And without him being able to take guys off the dribble and make some of those tough shots, create offense. The only other guy who could create his shot on the floor was Embiid, and Embiid had a magnificent game today, but we knew that he had that injury coming in. If he's going to play, that's fine, because his meniscus tear isn't going to get any better in the playoffs. He's either going to play or he's not, but making him take that kind of load on his shoulders in game one and not having somebody else next to him to be able to create and generate offense when they need it, that was definitely a blow for the team. And then on Atlanta's side, I was really impressed with John Collins today. He he wasn't scoring in volume. He wasn't getting as many touches, maybe, as he ultimately should have, given his efficiency. But when he got his opportunities, he destroyed the 76ers. He was a, a vertical lob threat, completely outclassed Tobias Harris on that end. Um, he was hitting open jump shots when he had them, when, when the 76ers were deciding to double off of him and leave him open from the perimeter. Collins was making them pay um, left and right, then... He's usually rebounding well in the glass. Certainly some of his offensive putbacks really hurt the Sixers today as well. So those were a lot of my key takeaways from this first game. Uh, what are some of your thoughts, Kevin, just on, on the series as a whole today? What direction do you think it's going to go? And I don't know how much of the game you got to see today. Yeah, I didn't get to see too much of it, but I was able to look over the stats and kind of expand on your point about how uh, Tobias Harris needed to be a better second wingman. I know I brought this up to you before the podcast, but, like, when Ben Simmons only has seven field goal attempts in a game, that's not going to be good enough. And I know we have this discussion all the time about how he doesn't need a three-point shot, right? He doesn't even need a jump shot, in your opinion, as long as he stays aggressive. Correct. But he didn't. when you only shoot the ball seven times, then I thought he had ten free throws, so I'm assuming that at maximum, because I didn't get to watch the game, but at maximum he took 12 shots this game. You're paying a guy the max to be one of your, if not your star. And you just take 12 shots. That's just not good enough. And I know that Danny Green had a bad game. Tobias didn't look great overall. But Ben Simmons has to decide if he wants to be aggressive in the series. And if he doesn't want to be aggressive in the series, then they're not going to beat this Atlanta team because this Atlanta team's a real team. Like We talk about how Philly is this probably the second favorite to make it out of the East. Because they're a very well-rounded team, great defensively, right, with Simmons and Seibel. But Trey Young is just good enough to be better than the defense. He is. And they have to match that energy. And if they don't match the energy, it's going to be over for them. That being said, I think this is an outlier. I do think Philly ends up taking it in five. I don't see them losing, or I mean, I see them losing another game. But I don't think they will because I think this is a good wake-up call. And I'm glad it happened now rather than, like, down the road. I think this is good, like, hey, we need to get our shit together. Would you say that's probably fair or no? Yeah, it was a fantastic wake-up call. Yeah. And it certainly served as one. In in the second half, when, when, the, when the Sixers launched that massive comeback, they were swarming Atlanta on defense, playing a full-court press style, barely even letting them inbound the ball. And that was the kind of effort and intensity. Not saying that an NBA team needs to play full court press for the entire length of the game. But even coach David Thorpe on Twitter today was talking about how sometimes you just need these NBA teams to embrace 
playing a full quarter like an ear intermediate press at times just to, to offer a, a different style and a different look at an opposing team and, and, and teams who can take advantage of that with their size, length, and athleticism and are able to deploy that a little more often than, than not going to it at all. It's just something that, that benefits you. It's something that not every NBA team looks to go to, or sometimes even at all. So that level of effort and intensity that was behind some of those presses just needed to be there all game long, and it wasn't. The, the intensity wasn't there on defense for virtually the entire first half, and the, the Hawks took advantage. And you can kind of tell when Trey Young feels disrespected in a matchup because for as much as you and I praised him on our last podcast when we did like a first-round check-in, talking about how he's been running the team so much better as a floor general, not necessarily being the score-first point guard that he wanted to be when he first came into the league or, or handing out assists and, and passes only when he felt that the other guy was going to be able to make the shot. Um, you, you get the impression that when Trey feels disrespected, he's going to come out and definitely go to more of that scoring attack that he's used to, but he's doing it so much more efficiently now. He's not just gunning at you, bringing the ball right up half court and launching a three as soon as he's by the logo. He's probing the, probing the defense, bringing the ball in and out, making sure he's getting other guys involved, but he's being patient and split second when he sees an opening he's taking advantage of it and then he's looking at one of those other guys on the other team saying hey I'm here you need to respect me as a shot maker not necessarily just a point guard and he did a great job of establishing his dominance on the offensive end today and I, I give him a lot of credit I, I I don't think Philly was was fully prepared to deal with how well he was going to be able to play offense as a whole 31 points eight assists only one turnover on the game and it was a lot of his passing and his encouraged ball movement that got a lot of those other wings open for three-point shots um the i mean the the percentage that atlanta was able to shoot today from three was ridiculous so um i, I was really pleased with what i saw from atlanta that being said you and i agree i think philly's ultimately going to take this series i think you and i both have them down to take this series in six games but yeah i absolutely envision this series going at least six um, it wouldn't even surprise me if it made it to a seventh game, to be honest, because I think if Atlanta gets hot, they can be that explosive on offense. And Capella probably did as good of a job as he was going to do today on on Embiid. But it's funny. We talked about last podcast on the check-in how Portland was doing a good job defensively just in terms of forcing the ball into Jokic, Jokic's hands inside the arc making him rack up twos, like, yeah, that's fine. Jokic was putting points on the board, but if you're able to go down to the other end, pass the ball around, swing it around, and hit a bunch of open threes, threes greater than two. And you really saw that take effect for Atlanta today. I'm not quite sure if that was in their their, their strategy. I don't know if that's definitely what they wanted to happen, if they wanted to give and beat everything he could handle. But it, it, it still worked out that same way, and it worked to their benefit. They were able to win this game because they were just able to shoot the ball much more effectively from the perimeter. So, yeah, I think it's definitely going to go at least seven games. I mean, at least six games. Uh, wouldn't surprise me if it went to a seventh. But, yeah, what an impressive showing for, for Atlanta today. And I think if, if you're Philly and you're Doc Rivers, first of all, you better have Ben Simmons coming out playing Trey Young as much as possible defensively in game two. And you better have him playing Trey one-on-one as much as possible, not relying on this this trap defense as soon as Trey Young steps uh, above half court because 
Trey's so good of a passer. He's so instinctual, so quick of a passer that if you give him any kind of lane, if you bring that double too early, he's going to find the next guy. And and Atlanta proved today that if they're playing with guys like Bogdanovich, Herter, these are also more than capable secondary playmakers who they will make the extra pass if needed. So if there's another guy who's open for the better shot, I mean, once you double Trey at the top of the court and Trey has that passing lane, he's able to get the ball away without turning it over. It's like the domino effect for everybody else to get involved and, and get a clean shot. So Philly really has to make sure that they're playing as good of one-on-one defense as possible, stay home on their man. But to do that, you have to have the right people guarding in the correct matchups. And that starts with, with, with Ben guarding Trey. I don't know how you feel about any of that, Kevin, and, and what adjustments you might look for Philly to possibly make in the second game. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, I have two questions, actually, for you. One is, yep. since I didn't get to watch the game, how did Embiid look today in terms of, like, his health? Did he look he, pretty okay? or He looked healthy. He, he looked okay. really healthy. He kind of tweaked his knee a little bit towards the end of the game. You mm-hmm. could tell he came down on it awkwardly on, on, yeah. on one possession. But other than that, he looked much better than I expected. But the injury that he has... It's really about how much pain is he going to be able to withstand. Like there is no fix for it during the playoffs. Yeah, he's going to have to get surgery. He's likely going to have some kind of procedure done in in the off season, and there will be decisions that have to be made about what kind of procedure Hmm. happens with that knee. But yeah, he's got to. He's either got to tough it out, or he's not going to play. Okay, my second question is: What do you think Philly needs to do in terms of like their lineup? Do you think it stayed the same for Game Two, or do you think we switch it up? I I think that, and this is a tough one because I know what Doc Rivers is probably thinking when he looks at Matisse Thybul. He's looking at him thinking, if I play him more minutes, can I trust him to be able to hit open threes at enough of a rate to where we're not playing four on five when we come down the court on offense? However, if Danny Green isn't going to hit anything and he's going to go two, two of seven from the field, 0 for four from three, and he's going to not give you quite as much defensive value as you'd expect from him certainly as not as much as somebody like Matisse I think that's definitely something that Doc needs to go to I think we need to see a little more of Matisse sooner if Danny's not going to be able to provide you know value particularly on offense spreading the floor and and hitting shots so that's definitely one adjustment I'd look for them to make and also for God's sakes Doc please know all bench lineups in the playoffs that was that was the other criticism that was all over social media today was that when doc went to these all bench lineups wasn't mixing and matching with some of his starters or some of his other star caliber players those lineups got shredded and was definitely a big difference as to why philly got in that hole during the second quarter so those are probably the two adjustments i would look for them to make definitely moving forward all right well but, with that let's uh i think we should move on to the other eastern conference matchup then right yeah, we had the game last night. Again, we're recording this on the 6th, but we had Bucks nets first game last night. Um, the downside for Brooklyn coming out of that game is obviously James Harden's health. Now, we did hear that he's not going to be available for Game 2. We'll see what happens with him as far as moving forward Game 3 and on. But, Kevin, he went out in the game pretty early, and Brooklyn still was in control for the majority of that game against Milwaukee and it's because of their ability to play with that lineup that that lineup that I've kept talking about that I think is the best lineup left in the entire playoffs right now 
where it's the big three and then it's Joe Harris and it's Blake Griffin. Now, obviously losing Harden, you got to plug another player in there, but even somebody like, like a Bruce Brown or a Shamit who's able to hit an open shot when called upon, but still be able to move the ball as well when they have to. Just the threat of having a lineup with so many star shot makers combined with guys who are willing to move the ball, take somebody off the dribble and make the correct read, the correct play to get somebody else open for another shot. I mean, it, it is so tough going up against the lineup when you have three guys, even two of those guys, all-star caliber scorers, guys who can get you 40 on any given night. But it's a completely different animal when you have to defend against five guys who are very instinctual and capable of moving the ball off the bounce. And, and I talked about that. I sung Joe Harris's praises on the last podcast, but let's give Blake Griffin some credit too. And he had 18 points, 14 rebounds, three assists in that game, even though he fouled out last night, just still the impact that he was able to have. And then, like I said, you're able to bring in some of those other guys off the bench, Chioza, Shamit, uh, Nick Claxton is clearly going to be the answer uh, for, for Steve Nash as he, as he was trying to figure out who's the other quote unquote big man, that I'm able to, to bring into this game and have a positive impact. Claxton can be that guy, and that's clearly the, the guy that he wants to go to. Um, but, yeah, the, the Brooklyn's best lineup, when they're all healthy, nobody's beating that lineup um, be, just because of the versatility offensively that it offers. Um, and, and, and on that same notion, Brooklyn was able to come in and hit so many different perimeter shots the Bucks were like six of 30 from three point range. Um, and they've kind of been cold as, as a jump shooting team all playoffs long. Um, they found success in the postseason doing the easy things around the basket, scoring on cuts, um, the roll man scoring out of pick and roll sets, getting guys involved on handoffs. So they've been able to find creative ways to impact the game offensively. But um, in terms of isolation, shot making, spot up opportunities, jump shooting of any kind, we, we saw Chris Middleton hit some big shots against the Miami Heat. Giannis had a few of his moments. Drew Holiday had some moments, but they're not going to get those looks as easily against this Brooklyn team, even though we, we want to harp on Brooklyn not being the best defensive team. At the end of the day, they're guys who are experienced. They've been there. They know how to fight it out when, when it comes to playing defense. They know where to be and, and, and what to do at the right time. So... This is not going to be an easy series for the Bucks if they're not able to hit at least some perimeter shots effectively. If they're just going to be cold in this whole series, then I'm going to stick with the prediction that I definitely would have given before last night. I think it's Nets in five. I don't think this is a particularly long series. I think the Bucks are going to be bowing out uh, pretty early here. And, and the Bucks were having a lot of media faithful um, actually siding with them. I, I know quite a few prominent members from like ESPN, other different organizations were actually picking the Bucks to win this series uh, because of how good they looked against Miami. But I think you're on, I think those people are underselling the kind of impact that, that somebody like Blake Griffin can have in a playoff series like this. When you move on to these later rounds, how much experience he has, how smart of a basketball player he is. I understand he wasn't the, the top performer for Brooklyn in, in the Boston Celtics series, but if he's going to keep racking up games like he did last night, that only that only gives more credence to, to what I think is going to happen here. I think it's going to be Nets in, in a pretty quick series, whether James Harden is able to play the majority of the series or not. Um, I see that on our little Google Doc here, Kevin, you, you have the Nets winning, but you have it going to seven games. 
Um, so what gives you confidence about the Bucks being able to at least compete at a high level with Brooklyn? Uh, the big thing that I think is that there's no way Blake Griffin and Joe Harris are going to consistently hit 50% of the three-pointers. If, if both of those make 50% of the three-pointers, shooting like nine times a game, Milwaukee's getting swept. I'll make that prediction right now. I don't think they keep it up. I think Joe Harris will shoot around 40%. I think Blake Griffin's going to regress a little bit. Not so much as a bad player, but I just don't think he hits four out of nine three-pointers every single game. There's no That game was vintage Blake Griffin last night. Yep. And I don't think we're going to see that every single game this series. Um, and I also just trust this Bucks team. Like, I, they're shooting bad, right? But the one big thing is when you shoot bad three-point land, there are times where you just, it clicks, right? And instantly you remember how to shoot. And if you start making a few, you're going to make a lot more than that. Let's say somebody like uh, Middleton, right? He went 0 for 5 last night. All it takes is him hit 1 or 2 in the beginning of the game uh, tomorrow night, and boom, he's back to how he used to be, making people wonder when he needed to be. Um, but that being said, I definitely said the Bucks and or the Nets and 7 was my opinion before last night's game, and I'm sticking true to it because I don't feel like I should have, like, game 1 uh, bias. If I had to make an updated prediction now, I actually do think the Nets are going to win in 6. I just, the Bucks team just, um, there's something about them. Like, and I thought Miami would expose it, right? I talked about that all the time. I don't think the Bucks team is as good as last year. I don't know what it is. It may be, I know you mentioned on Twitter, right? Didn't you uh, tweet about Bjorn Holt, uh having, like, lineup issues? Yeah, Coach Bud definitely um, hasn't been the best coach when it comes to actually planning what he's going to do with rotations, what guys he's going to have in his rotation, especially deeper in the playoffs. Uh, you definitely saw that, like, like I mentioned, some of those lineups that Doc threw out today for, for the Sixers. I think that was at times worse than what I've seen from Bud, but the, Bud's definitely had that problem. Um, to, to me, where the Bucks are really going to make a mark in this series, if they're going to make one, they've been second in terms of total defense per synergy stats in the playoffs so far. That trend has to continue that has to be what they hang their hat on they need to be able to guard their matchups one-on-one stay home on some of those other guys and not let the players not not let joe harris and blake griffin or, or somebody like landry shamit they can't let those other guys beat them as much as they have like that to me is is really what's going to decide this series if the other guys are able to impact the game in such a positive way on both ends of the floor then Milwaukee doesn't stand a chance. Like Kyrie, Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, and if James Harden can play in the series, like they're going to get theirs. Like there's nothing you can do about it. It is what it is. You guard them as best as you can one-on-one. You can't bring consistent double teams because all three of those guys are smart enough to whip the ball wherever it needs to go. You got to stay home in your matchup and live with the results. But you can't let those other guys, if you're able to force the ball out of their hands, and it goes in the hands of like a Joe Harris, a Landry Shaman, a Nick Claxton. You cannot let those other guys make a play off the bounce where they're able to get the ball back into the hands of one of those stars and set them up for a shot that's even easier than what they would have had in an isolation set. You can't, you can't be turning the ball over. You can't let Brooklyn run out in transition where, again, you have these star-level playmakers who are going to fill the lanes correctly and make the right decision in transition. You can't give Brooklyn the easy stuff. You have to make them 
work for everything, and that includes the role players. So if Milwaukee is able to make better defensive adjustments heading into game two, which I will be curious to see, and I'll be watching game two a lot more closely than, than I was able to watch game one. I didn't see every single minute of game one, but that's really what I'm going to be looking at. I, that's kind of what I said when we were talking about a, a little more of a preview for this series as well on our last pod. I wanted to see how Milwaukee was able to match up with Brooklyn defensively, and that still holds true. That has to be their calling card or else they're going to get blown off the floor by this Nets team. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you're saying completely. I think it'll be a really interesting series to watch. And um, let me pose this one last question before we move on to the Western Conference. Who do you think the one player in Milwaukee is? Uh, obviously, you can't say Giannis because he's been great. But who's the one player that really needs to step up? Do you think it's Middleton or do you think it's somebody else? I can say Middleton because I think he needs to be that consistent second banana, even more so than Drew Holiday. But one, one guy who's been incredibly effective for Milwaukee over the last two years now has been Brooke Lopez. When he's able to stretch the floor, hit threes at the rate that he's capable of now, and also provide that defensive value protecting the rim, that's something that Brooklyn cannot just easily expose and, and essentially take him out of the game. So I think it's a combination of Middleton as well as Lopez that they need to maintain their effectiveness next to Giannis. And, and when, when Brooks able to do his job effectively and when Chris is able to do his job effectively as like a secondary isolation type scorer, that eases the burden that's on Giannis's shoulders. Or when, when those other guys aren't doing their jobs around him, that's how you get into those situations like we've seen him where he has to do every single thing for that team off the dribble. He's not a supreme scorer in isolation in terms of shooting jumpers. So you force him into those brick wall situations. That's exactly how he gets himself into those situations is that his teammates, when they're not being effective elsewhere, they kind of put him in those tough spots. So yeah, it, it Middleton definitely needs to continue to hit shots. Drew holiday, uh, has to contribute where he's able to, but but guys like Brooke being able to do their job, um, guys like Connaughton having to come and be able to hit shots. He Giannis needs the role players around him to at least do the little things to set him up for continued success. So that that would be my my biggest thing. It's not just one person that needs to step up and do their job better. It's really all of the role players around him. Uh, because Brooklyn's getting those types of contributions from their role players. It's not just the stars that are stepping up. It's everyone for the Nets has has chipped in in some form or fashion in, in game one against Milwaukee as well as throughout that whole Boston series. Yeah, I think that makes complete sense. So we'll move into the Western Conference here. Uh, we, we saw the Clippers take care of business against the Mavericks this afternoon. Really, again, we want to talk about individual contributions versus team contributions. Luca, we know we had the 14 assists today. He obviously had the 40 plus point performance, but it just seemed like down the stretch, it was the Luca Doncic show. He was treating the game. I saw Gary Neal actually uh, post on Facebook. He was treating it like a summer pro-am. Um, and to an extent, I actually agree. He was looking for way too much. Um, in isolation, he was trying to back guys down, go to those one-legged pull-ups a little too often, trying to do way too much getting to the basket. 
I think he needed to have a little more trust in some of his teammates. Now, in his defense, I also thought that Carlisle should have mixed up the rotations a lot more. Like Trey Burke played, in my opinion, way, way more minutes than he should have. Um, Jalen Brunson didn't get nearly as much run today as I thought he should have. And that, that, that definitely affects the game when you have another guy next to Luca, like Brunson, who's a more than capable playmaker. Um, some guy who can set the table for everyone else versus Burke, who while, yeah, Burke plays the point guard position. He plays the point guard position because he's that small of a player. Um, he's not able to really play effectively off the ball. He, he's there as a scorer, but he's not really there as a table setter and, a, and an initiator of offense. So that definitely hurt Dallas today. That the ball had to kind of be in Lucas' hands so much. Um, Porzingis actually wasn't that bad today. Uh, I, I got to give him a little credit there, but still, it was it was pretty much Luca versus what turned out to be an entire Clippers team. Morris was stepping up, hitting big shots. Reggie Jackson ste- stepped up and hit a ton of uh, big threes today. Paul George did his job, um, chipping in the assist total along with what he was able to score, and then obviously Kawhi down the stretch. His two-way presence definitely helped the Clippers win that game today. So um, I, I, it, it didn't turn out the way that I thought. I thought the Clippers would be able to much better handle the Mavericks, but give Luka all of his props. He certainly balled out in this series. We know that he's a superstar in waiting. He, he's one of the better players we have in the game today. But the Clippers were too much, and they're going to be going on to face uh, another complete team in, in the Utah Jazz. And they're led by Donovan Mitchell, who is a stone-cold killer. You put the ball in his hands, he's going to tell everyone to get out of his way. An isolation shot maker, someone who can also get everybody else involved. They obviously have their secondary playmakers like Joe Ingles, uh, Mike Conley. You have guys off the, who can come off the bench and hit big shots like Clarkson. And then you have Rudy Gobert manning the middle. And man... I, I I picked Jazz in six specifically in this series. I don't know how I fully feel about that. I could even go to Jazz in five. Kevin, I you think I think you have Jazz in five here in our doc. Um, why why don't you talk to me a little bit about what you think might happen in this series? Um, let me open up with this. What I thought from Kawhi the last three games, kind of like set in stone how good of a player Kawhi is. Yep. The last two years have been a little bit rougher, Kawhi. I think everybody can agree. Like, he still put up his numbers, right? But it's not the typical, like, dominant team atmosphere that a team with Kawhi's used to. But these last two games, Kawhi's just taken over completely and shown everybody in the media and all the fans, hey, I'm still here. I'm still Kawhi. And I think that's a big thing to take away from the Dallas uh, Clippers series. We were talking about how Luka was so great the entire series, and Kawhi's like, no, I'm that guy. Luka's going to be that guy, but I'm that guy right now. Um, but moving on to the Clippers-Jazz series, as good as Kawhi has been, just like I felt a little bit weird about the Lakers this year, I just think there's something wrong with the Clippers team. I don't think they're as good of a team as the Jazz. And realistically, I think if Luka was 100% healthy, and I think if he had any help, they don't win that series against Dallas. I mean... The team just looks like it has issues, and I don't want to hate on Tyron Lue because everything I hear is a great guy, right? Championship coach. But he doesn't look like he has the same level of control over that team as Doc does, and that is expected. Doc's one of the all-time greats. He's been around forever, right? But I just, I don't know. I think that the Jazz are more of a complete team. Gobert is my defensive player of the year. I know that, I think you're a Ben Simmons guy. You should be the defensive player of the year. 
Donovan Mitchell's great. He finally rebounded off that ankle injury. I think they're role player. They're good. They have two sixth man of the year winners as far as I'm concerned with Ingles and Clarkson. That team is just so good. And I think Ingles and Clarkson are the real keys to win the series. So one thing I'm going to be really curious to see in this matchup at certain times are the kind of lineups that the Clippers are, are going to go to. Um, what I mean by that is while we can sit here and, and praise the Jazz's backcourt for as explosive as they are offensively, they're still technically a smaller backcourt when it comes to Mike Conley, Donovan Mitchell, and Jordan Clarkson. Um, Conley and Mitchell both being about 6'1". Obviously, Mitchell is built as a guard. I'm not taking anything away from him in terms of his bulk and his physique, but just height and length-wise, he's not the biggest of guards. Conley, all obviously the same way. Clarkson is taller and a little longer than both of those guys, but his body isn't built in the same way, particularly as like a Donovan Mitchell. Uh, the Clippers now, Reggie Jackson's kind of built uh, much more physical of a guard. He, he's not the tallest of guards, but he's built really well. Um, they have two other guys who I didn't even mention, Kevin, before at, at the top of this when we started talking about the Clippers and their performance today, but two unsung heroes from the Mavericks game would be Terrence Mann and Luke Kennard, both uh, guards with size. Um, if they want to throw some different lineups out there, maybe go with a bigger lineup overall, you can have Kawhi Leonard and Paul George also match up a lot more often with some of those guards on Utah, depending on how they want to run some different offensive schemes and get switches in their favor. So I'm going to be really curious to see how the Clippers can possibly take advantage of the kind of size that they're able to have on their perimeter slash wing and how that might affect Utah defensively and what they want to do. Do they maybe play up in size with the Clippers as well? Maybe only play with one of those guards on the floor at a time versus running some of those lineups where you have obviously Mitchell and Conley in the backcourt together. We we've even seen them go to like some three guard lineups where all three of those guys are in there together with either like a Royce O'Neal or a Joe Ingles. And then obviously go bear at center. They can play so many different ways. Both teams really can. So I'm going to be curious to see what kind of adjustments each team makes from game to game and how they're able to interact with one another. But as you pointed out, Kevin, I just think the Jazz have so many different shot makers that they can go to. They're just a better coached offensive team. You know that they're going to consistently move the ball. They're going to shoot well from the outside. This is really about how the Clippers are able to make adjustments from game to game and leverage the production from their stars who will have the physical and the athletic advantages in this series. So I think it's going to be Jazz in, in, in six, but... You know, anything can happen in the playoffs at this point. We, we, we've we seen that now. We, we really can't expect anything to happen, but that's just my prediction for how I see that unfolding. I don't think it's going to be that interesting of a series. I think guys like, like Zach Lowe are going to have a fun time previewing this series and talking about all the different matchups, but I'm a lot more intrigued in the Nuggets-Sun series that we're going to get because of how well Phoenix has played as a whole. They knocked off the defending champs. Um, I've liked watching them all year. I, I said when we were coming into this playoff preview as a whole that I thought that whoever won Suns-Lakers was going to represent the West in the finals. I still feel that way. I see Phoenix winning this series. I don't really see this being a particularly close series at all. I think it's going to be Suns in five. Um, the Nuggets are just poor defensively in so many different areas. They really showed a lot of those warts against Portland. Um, 
Gordon really seems to be the Nuggets' only defensive weapon until Barton is able to play. And there are rumors that he's going to be able to to get some court time in this upcoming series. But I just don't think that the Nuggets are going to have enough answers defensively for everything that Phoenix brings to the table. Um, and, and, and we talked about how Phoenix would be able to take advantage of the Lakers kind of falling asleep at the wheel at times defensively um, when, when they were executing some of their offensive sets. It's funny, the Suns didn't even live up to that type of praise that, that I gave them in terms of doing the little things to be able to cash in some, some easy extra points. And while I don't think that that's going to happen again in terms of them not being as effective on, on different of those little play types. I think that they're definitely going to take more advantage of the Nuggets lack of defensive prowess. And I think the Suns are really going to rack up some points on Denver and it's going to become, how does Denver approach that kind of a shootout type environment again? And as I mentioned earlier, Portland laid out a little bit of a blueprint in, in terms of, how to maybe negate some of Denver's offensive effectiveness. Put the ball in Jokic's hands. Keep it in Jokic's hands. Don't let some of those other guys like like Monte Morris get involved and be able to make plays with the ball and, and get others open from three. Keep the ball in Jokic's hands. Force him inside the arc. Don't let him make plays for others outside the three-point arc. And then go out on the other end and, and, and get your threes and spades. And uh, Phoenix has plenty of shooters who got hot during that Lakers series and remain hot. Cameron Payne had an excellent series. Mikhail Bridges had an excellent series. Cam Johnson is a more than capable shot maker from three-point range. Uh, and the other thing, too, is that Aiton really grew up in that Lakers series. I was really impressed with how well he played on both ends in the paint. And if he's able to have a similar type of impact um, against Nikola Jokic, then I mean, that, that, that's probably, to me, the biggest matchup to watch is, is that big man matchup, not necessarily even anything on the backcourt or on the wing. Um, how do you feel about Suns Nuggets, Kevin? Where do you see the series going? Uh, I kind of agree with you with everything. I think Denver is just a weaker team. I think if they had Jamal Murray, we'd be talking about this in a different light. Because I think with Jamal Murray, Denver's offense can really keep up with the lack of their defense. Um, but overall, I would just say that I think Phoenix is a very complete team. I think they're all yep. incredibly motivated. I think Devin Booker is one of the best players in the NBA. Chris Paul is the smartest NBA player by far, other than one point guard from New Orleans. Um, but other than that, I just I don't see the Suns losing the series. I would have been much more worried about them losing the Lakers than losing to the Nuggets. So two other things to really keep in mind here. Um, the, that I will mention. Obviously, Aiden versus Jokic to me is the most intriguing matchup. But will the Nuggets put Gordon as much on Booker as, as they kind of did at times to Dame and they limited Dame's effectiveness that way? If Gordon does primarily play on Booker for this series, how does that translate as far as Booker's offensive efficiency? And then obviously, it's a shame that we really have to keep monitoring the situation. But what does Chris Paul's health look like going into the series how is that going to affect how he plays not only offensively in terms of his shot making but how is he able to keep up with speedier guys like morris on the defensive end as well um can can cameron Payne kind of ease some of those concerns and continue to play at the level that he was playing at in that lakers series these are all fair questions to ask but those are really the three things that i'm going to be monitoring and i can't wait to do a check-in 
on this series a little later just to kind of see what are some of the different matchups how they've been playing out and, and who really gets to take hold of this series i will say that if denver can come out punch with confidence and maybe steal one of those games in phoenix then I think it has a chance to go past five games. But I think if the Suns come out as focused as they were in that Lakers series, get both of the, those wins at home and be able to go to Denver with a 2-0 lead, I think it's going to be pretty quick. But I think you have you have Suns in six, correct, Kevin? Yeah, I think Jokic and Porter Jr. will end up getting a game or two. I just think they're too good not to. But overall, I just think Phoenix the deeper team. I also would believe that there's a possibility that Chris Paul's going to be not rested per se this series. But I don't think he's going to play the full amount that he usually would unless it gets dire. And I think that's the right thing to do. Let him take the series off for a little bit. If he gets to the point where you need him, put him back in. But try and, like, ease him a little bit this series because they're going to need him for the finals if they make it that far. I agree with that. I agree with that. And I think you you get away with playing Chris Paul while Composa's in the game for Denver. I think once Denver makes a move to go to somebody like Monte Morris off the bench, I'm not sure you want Chris Paul chasing somebody like him around um, and, and having to, to rely on him as being this offensive and, and defensive guy going up against somebody like Monte Morris. Um, so I agree with that. I would definitely try to conserve Chris as much as you possibly can, especially with the Nuggets being without Jamal Murray. You mentioned Michael Porter. I guess he's technically a question mark too. Can Porter maintain the hot shooting that he had in that last series. He was 54% shooting from the field and 41.5% from three. So if he's making shots at, at that level in this series, that obviously poses a problem for Phoenix. But I trust, I think Mikhail Bridges is going to get that defensive assignment. And I trust Bridges to get the job done against Porter, at least done well enough as much as you can, right? Like Porter's a, a 6'10 forward with a sweet shooting stroke. Like, there are going to be games or moments where he's going to get his, but I think overall Bridges is definitely someone you want in the foxhole going to war against somebody who's as talented of a scorer as Porter is. So yeah, we, we, we've talked, we, we beat the drum at this point about how the Suns are such a complete team. They have weapons. They have answers for everything that you can throw at them. I just see more of that in this series. I think it's going to be pretty quick. So that pretty much wraps up what we wanted to talk about heading into the second round of the playoffs. We'll do another check-in pod uh, kind of in the middle of the second round here, similar to what we did in the first round. But we thank you so much for your support, um, your, your, your willingness to listen and tune into our podcast. We're definitely going to have some more draft coverage this week at well. We have a special guest, Simon Rath, coming on to talk about some of his favorite guard prospects, most notably Sharif Cooper and Bones Highland. I've avoided talking about a few of those guys like them of late because I wanted to get Simon on to give some of his perspective. As far as what I was seeing on, on social media, I mean, he, he was definitely first on, on, on some of those guys in terms of really educating even me uh, about some of their games and, and their, their, their draft equity. So that conversation is going to be awesome. I can't wait to get that out to you guys as well. In the meantime, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast feed so you don't miss that one. Wherever you get your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, follow us on Twitter, at DraftDeeper. I'm firing off tweets constantly during the playoffs as well as with any prospect thoughts that I want to ch chip in on as we're fully in draft season here. Participate with me on there. Get in the conversation. I love talking to you guys. 
and just thank you so much for your continued support um, to this podcast. It really means a lot. Enjoy the playoff basketball. Enjoy going deeper in some of these prospect evaluations. I look forward to checking back in later in the week. Have a good one.